From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. Today, what to do about the fraying of the NATO alliance. Our alliance was created by people who had lived through two devastating world wars. They were determined that this should never happen again. And they were also determined to stand up to the expansion of the Soviet Union. In the Cold War, it was routine. Russian planes buzzing the airspace of NATO members in Western Europe. The report details the extent to which Moscow has revived the tactic. So membership in NATO obligates the members to defend any other member that's attacked. Why should my son go to Montenegro to defend it from attack? Why is that? I understand what you're saying. I've asked the same question. In his joint address to Congress on Tuesday, President Trump took credit for getting NATO allies to spend more money on defense. NATO is, is obsolete. It's old. It's fat. It's sloppy. NATO has been good for Europe. But NATO has also been good for the United States. Our guest is Victoria Newland. Victoria is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings and a former assistant secretary of state. She's also served as U.S. ambassador to NATO. And a quick note, this episode includes some explicit language. Victoria, welcome. Let's start with the problem. Does it work to frame it this way? The NATO alliance is fraying for a variety of reasons at the very moment that the threat posed by outside forces, especially Russia, is surging. How do you feel about that? I would say in every generation of NATO's life, and NATO now older than 70, uh, there have been problems that challenged the resilience and applicability of the alliance. But there's only one reason that the NATO alliance is in difficulty right now, which is that the current president of the United States continues to cast into doubt whether our founding promise to each other, mutual self-defense, will be honored. You know, the United States was the founding member of the NATO alliance. We wrote and signed the treaty in Washington. So the problem is this underlying seed of doubt that's been sown, and the fact that we could be reinventing NATO yet again for some of the challenges it's not yet dealing with. And is it fair to say that the threat is growing? Um, Because, of course, as you were pointing out, with the possible exception of the period after the end of the Cold War, NATO has always faced grave and existential threats. And yet there does seem to be something particular about this moment in terms of the dangers that are looming on virtually all sides. You know, having studied NATO first and then worked at NATO through various iterations, I think when you're in it, it always feels like the existential moment. It certainly felt existential when we invoked Article 5 on September 12, 2001. That's the mutual self-defense language in NATO's article, right? Correct. The day after the Twin Towers went down in New York, all NATO members committed to help the United States defend itself against whomever had hit us. And at that time, we didn't even know who it was. That an armed attack against one or more of the allies in Europe or in North America shall be considered an attack against them all. So that moment certainly felt existential, particularly when we went to vote in NATO. And if everybody had not agreed, we would have wrecked the alliance right there. But to be back 
in the place of NATO's founding, which is that we have to worry about territorial incursions onto NATO landmasses and countries is a little bit back to the future, and it does feel scary. I think that there are plenty of other threats that are also going to challenge our kids and, and next generations, but that NATO format provides a great place for the great nations of the transatlantic space to talk about these things and to set some policies together, and we're just not using NATO for that. And when we talk about NATO or the transatlantic alliance, when we talk about it fraying, um, what are you most worried about? So I think that there are a number of things here. The first thing is, is our security commitment to each other still solid, as we discussed? The second thing was the economic commitment that we have to each other in the transatlantic space. Uh, that begins to break down when the United States puts tariffs on its own allies and uses tariffs as a, as a weapon of coercion equally against its allies and its competitors. So France did that. I told him, I said, don't do it, because if you do it, I'm going to tax your wine ring tariff. And then the third piece is that all of this is based on commitment to free societies, democracies that include elections and alternation of power, free media, uh, independent judiciaries, uh, transparency of public finance, all these things. And again, you have a United States that is not only not preaching those values and extending and expanding them the way we always have, we're not necessarily always practicing in them at home either. Trump has raised a lot of questions and made people very anxious um, with some of the things that he said, his reluctance to embrace Article 5, for example, um, before eventually doing it. But beyond the rhetoric, have things actually gotten worse in a more sort of concrete material way in NATO? Um, I think NATO is performing the fundamental security tasks that it needs to perform, including keeping lots of forces of many nations out on the eastern edge to deter the Russians, continuing to train in Afghanistan, continuing to modernize the way the alliance works, and frankly, continuing to get more money in the bank for defense from all these countries, which by the way, started in 2014 after the Crimea threat. My concern is simply that if we ever had a catastrophic moment or a security crisis, do the rest of the members of NATO feel secure enough in the way the United States supports them that they would support us if we needed them? And what do you think the answer to that question is? I think it depends on what the circumstances were. It depends on how long this seeding of doubt about our own reliability continues. Is that really what you're most worried about? The danger of a massive attack, for example, or is the real threat today from these forms of asymmetric warfare that Russia has gotten so good at waging, all of these things it does short of actual major war, whether it's election interference or air incursions through NATO airspace? Britain scrambled jets to intercept Russian aircraft on 21... I don't think any of these threats posed by Russia right now are insurmountable or even the most dangerous security threats that we face. My concern is that we're doing so little to coordinate our effort against them that we're providing an, an open greenfield for Russia to run roughshod, and in particular, 
vis-a-vis Russia, it's always been the case um, ever since the founding that the United States generally leads alliance policy towards Russia. So when you have an America that with a president that has one view of Russia and the cabinet and Congress that have a different view, it's very hard to provide coherent leadership, particularly on new challenges. Congress passed legislation that believed that Russia should be sanctioned. The president signed it, signed it reluctantly last summer and then hasn't decided not to implement. Right. So we have an America that seems less committed to the alliance itself, as well as to the shared values that were the core of the transatlantic community for so long. Um, At the same time that all of these old threats are raising their heads again and new threats are appearing. Now that we've, we've talked about what the problem is, let's step back and talk for a few minutes about how we got here. Is it fair to trace the contemporary origins of these problems to 2016 and the rise of Trump? Or do we need to go even further back, for example, to Ukraine in 2013, 2014? I think part of it, uh, if you want to look at the origins of President Trump's prejudices about NATO, go to the fact that we all took too big a peace dividend after the Cold War ended. The Berlin Wall, once it divided east from west, now on its way to becoming an artifact of history. You know, we we did pretty well, although it was always an issue in NATO to ensure burden sharing, you know, sufficient budgeting for security, sufficient contributions, military contributions to NATO and NATO missions by the allies. Every president since uh, Eisenhower and Truman have had to fight for more resources. America believes if Europeans invest in their own defense, they will also be stronger and more capable when we deploy. And that's why every NATO member should be contributing its full share. Two percent. NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. But particularly after the Berlin Wall fell, A lot of countries that had been maintaining 2% of their uh, national budgets for defense began to cut down to 1.7, 1.5, 1.4, 1.3 in the case of, of Germany at one point. And that just means that the U.S. is carrying an outsized burden and you don't have that. Um, sense of family all contributing to the shared budget, if you will. Um, So that gave uh, President Trump a stalking horse. But frankly, President Obama and all five presidents that I worked for also routinely um, beat the drum to get NATO allies to pay more. They began paying more after the invasion of Crimea because all of a sudden there was a physical security threat coming towards NATO territory. The question, I think, when President Trump comes in is whether you do better as the United States trying to encourage more spending with sugar or with vinegar. And we've had a lot of vinegar in this conversation. So that's one set of issues. The other set of issues is the value set, where I think we began to see with Viktor Orban in Hungary first and then in Poland and then in Turkey Uh, throughout the period from 2012 onward, 
increasing autocratic behavior, increasing populist behavior, using democratic majorities to make judiciaries less independent, to make media more state-run and less truly the fourth estate watchdogging and checking and balancing government power to squeeze out opponents, to harass them. Um, And this goes to the fundamental compact of values among allies. I think we were speaking out quite uh, strongly about these things in the Obama administration. We were working with the European Union Commission. But I don't think that President Trump cares about this. And in fact, he holds up a mirror and and sees a lot of similarities with a guy like Orban or a guy like um, Erdogan and has been very welcoming of them. Uh, Viktor Orban has uh, done a tremendous job in so many different ways, highly respected. So that just allows for further fraying of the fundamental platform on which this is built. So that's what's happening within the Western community. But what about the the threat side, the external threat side, the dangers coming from Russia? Um, Do you think that this current escalation, if it's fair to call it, that started with Ukraine, or does it go even further back than that? And I should say, by the way, you were on the the front lines as uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs from 2013 to 2017. Yes. I think that Russia made its first serious military probes into new space uh, with the Georgian War in 2008. And what were you doing in 2008? Were you In 2008 I was at NATO you were. as as ambassador. Yeah. And did you have a sort of a, a an epiphany a moment where you thought ah this is something new and and scary that we haven't seen before? You know, I think in the in the Georgian context they stopped short of putting full military power. The Russians did. The Russians Mm -hmm. did. But I do think it was a learning experience for Putin and his military in terms of how they do it next time, including with more deniability. Uh, They were extremely well rehearsed when they went into Crimea. So you get the feeling that they had been practicing. And that's, so we were fast forwarding from 2008 to what year? To 2014 in the winter. Um, is when they go into Crimea and then they go into the eastern parts of Ukraine, the Donbass. Columns of suspected Russian armor have been reported moving through east Ukraine amid fears of a new Russian escalation. You were seeing a much more sophisticated Russian operation this time? Sophisticated is a complicated word. Let's say deniable, stealthy, well-rehearsed, with these bizarre overlays of democratic veneer. You know, you remember that after the Russian forces supported the Crimean independence, they felt the need to have a national referendum um, among a population that had had about 10 minutes to think about it, and many of whom had left, and the rest of whom owed their pensions and their Mm. livelihoods to the aggressors. Now, you were arguably a victim of this uh, newly subtle, uh, we won't say sophisticated, but more deniable, but in some ways more technically and tactically adept um, Russian approach when in what has become, I think we have to admit, one of the most famous comments of your career. Um, <laughs> It'll be on my tombstone. <laughs> you were um, 
You told the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine to fuck the EU in a discussion of uh, whether the EU or uh, the U.N. should play a, a mediating role. Um, the Russians intercepted that call and then released it on, on YouTube. The phone call has overshadowed Newland's visit to Kiev. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said the comments were totally unacceptable. David Sanger, the New York Times reporter, has called you patient zero in this new era of weaponizing surveillance and information. Not disinformation in this case, but actual information. Can you tell us about that experience and, and, and what you learned from it? So we were in the middle of the Maidan protests in Ukraine in the winter of 2013-2014. You had 250,000 people standing on the streets in the snow demanding that the president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, go back to his previous policy of trying to get closer to the EU, have an association. And meanwhile, Putin had offered Yanukovych money not to do that. And these protests were going on and on, and they were getting more and more violent. And we were trying to figure out a way for protesters and and Yanukovych to come together because there were not the votes to impeach the guy. So we were working on a trying to midwife a national unity government. And after many weeks, Yanukovych finally agreed to allow a couple of opposition people to serve in the government and to have new elections, uh, which would have been a way to de-escalate the street, you know, classic diplomatic stuff. But the opposition didn't want to sit with him unless there was a mediator. So we had invited the EU to come mediate. They couldn't decide, couldn't decide. So when my ambassador called and said, we got to move quickly... What do you think? I think we're in play. Um, I use this barnyard epithet to um, push that option off and, and to get the UN into the game. He's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, fuck the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does... Um, I knew the Russians were listening. I assumed they were. We were very transparent with them about how we were trying to de-escalate this. But they had not put a private phone call on the street, you know, in some 25 years, certainly not since the Soviet Union had, had collapsed. So, you know, the minute it happened, I had to apologize to everybody involved certainly to the EU, to President Obama and Secretary Kerry, to all of the uh, Ukrainian oppositionists who had the interstices of our phone calls uh, also exposed. Was it diplomacy from the woman credited with using a graphic swear word? When but did anybody care, really care? I mean, everybody knows that the way that governments talk within governments is different from the way they make their public statements. Um, I think it was, it was, you know, it was unladylike. It was embarrassing. But the bizarre part about it, the Russians, I think, probably hoped to take me off the boards, get me fired, make me ineffective. But it also sort of made me weirdly famous above mm -hmm. my station. Um, and the fact that I survived it gave me a certain resilience in the conversation. Did so, you have to change the way you did things afterwards? Well, obviously, I wasn't going to talk on unclassified lines about things. But what it said to me, obviously, but I think to all of us, was that the Russians were really going to play dirty, that this was not going mm -hmm. to be strict set of overt, well-known diplomatic tools that they were going to use all of these cheap street fighting 
uh, things at their disposal and that they were putting more and more resources and effort into it. Yeah. So you were really the point person for the Obama administration's response to Crimea. Looking back now, five years later, do you think that the administration, that the U.S. did enough in responding to Russia's aggression? And was this a hinge moment where if the U.S. had done more, we might not be in the uh, quite the spot we are today? I think that we were late to appreciate that the Russians would move on Crimea and that they would move so quickly and with military power. The question is if we had been able to marshal the kind of unity that we were later able to marshal to sanction them, make an economic cost for Crimea and to say to them before they moved, you know, if you do this, here's what we will do in response. Might that have had deterrent effect? I don't think in a Crimea context we were ever going to make a decision to defend Crimea militarily. So we were too slow in that sense. Now, you're still in office at the end of the Obama administration when Russia turns its cyber guns on the United States um, and famously hacks the Democratic National Committee and then releases those emails. The Obama administration has been criticized then and since for not doing more to push back against the Russians, not doing it more publicly. How do you feel about that a few years on? Do you think you and the rest of the administration did all you could have or should have been more forceful in responding? Uh, I think we could have and should have done more when we knew that it was Russia involved. We could have taken some countermeasures, perhaps some covert countermeasures, to assert and exact a little pain in Russia itself on things that President Putin cared about such that he would know it was us and he would have to weigh whether he wanted to keep messing with us. Um, And we could have conceivably done that in the summer. Can you give us an example? Um, I think I won't. Uh, But um, it came with certain risks, including the fact that at that point, candidate Trump was already saying publicly, this is going to be a fair fight. This is going to be a rigged election. A rigged election. And there was considerable concern, I think, about anything that we might do that could lend any degree of credence to that. And I think the broad perception was that we would deal with it afterwards, that any president, whether it was Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, assuming that we could amass the information, would take strong countermeasures. I don't think anybody would imagine uh, how it actually went down. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Okay, so now we get to the really hard part, which is how do we fix this? And again, we're really dealing with two problems. One is the weakening or questioning of the alliance system and the transatlantic community, and the other is these ever more effective and... Um, I'm struggling not to say sophisticated, but more technically adept and subtle um, or inventive threats from Russia and elsewhere. Low cost, high impact. Great. You like it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, On the NATO side, obviously, I would like to see whoever is elected in 2020 recommit to the fundamentals of NATO, namely to protect our security together, to protect our values together. I do believe that the issues of keeping NATO funding strong are better done with 
joint industrial ventures, build those new helicopters that we need together, build those new roads and pieces of infrastructure to move military hardware together, build the cyber defenses together rather than banging on allies and telling them they're not doing enough. So mentoring, co-production, this kind of thing, I would like to see on that side. So more cooperation, more rhetorical support. What else? With regard to the Russia threat, as I, as I say, uh, they are playing a weak and cheap hand very successfully because we are not well as well coordinated as we should be, with the exception of the work that we're doing right along the eastern border, particularly with regard to arms control. You know, the fact that with the end of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces in Europe Treaty, uh, Russia is now building nuclear-tipped missiles that can hit Berlin and France. We need a far stronger set of countermeasures, and we need to be standing together in terms of the next stage of negotiation on arms control issues with the Russians. They want to extend the long-range arms control treaty. Well, why should we do that when they're violating the intermediate one? We should be building more missile defenses, these kinds of things together, and we should be tackling the digital threat. But then less NATO, more US-EU. We have to defend our democratic values. We have to get back to being courageous enough as leaders to submit to a free press and whatever kind of criticism they might have to ensure that judiciaries are independent, um, not to give jobs to our relatives, not to refuse to show our taxes, uh, put all kinds of public procurement on e-systems, all these kinds of things. And that should be a big thrust of squeezing out corruption in our own space. And then the last piece is encouraging innovation. You know, that we have the most talented, best educated, most sparkly intellects on this planet. We need together to support innovation-based economies that can pull the poison from populists who insist that we have to go back to the 1950s to live well. So that's a very long list of to-dos that you've just given me. Um, Too many? No, not too many. But my question is, how optimistic are you that the U.S. and its allies are going to do all of this or at least do enough to face this threat? It requires U.S. leadership. It requires a U.S. that remembers that we are stronger together, that going it alone will bring us to grief and will be much more expensive. And it requires confidence and a morning in America spirit as compared to what we have now on both sides of the Atlantic, which is a lot of screaming and yelling about the evil within us rather than believing in the the good and the hopeful within us. Victoria Newland, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you, Jonathan. Victoria Newland is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a former assistant secretary of state. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's editor-in-chief. Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. 
Next time on the podcast, Venezuela is collapsing. Venezuela is probably right now the home of the largest humanitarian crisis that this hemisphere has seen, perhaps the world, in modern history. Brookings Fellow and economist Danny Bahar tells us what the U.S. and the world can do and should do to help stabilize his native country.